Hey listeners, it's Steven from Phantology. Listen, before the episode starts, I would be remiss if I did not apologize for the audio quality. We had some major issues recording this episode that took a while to edit and it is still a little patchy in parts, but we figured something was better than nothing. So hopefully you still enjoy our takes and if this really suffers, we will do another recording of Chamber of Secrets. On to the show. Coming up, the number one fantasy book podcast breaking down the scrolls and spells of nerd culture. We're Phantology. You may have heard of us. They, on an impulse, decide to take the car and fly it to Hogwarts. Really questionable decision here. So many different ways this could have gone, but they just hop in the car and off they go. Well, if they were regular muggle kids, or if Harry had had regular muggle parents, he would know that when you get separated from your parents, you just wait at the car. You don't drive the car somewhere else? Look, they had probably driven the whole, or flown, the whole ride back to the borough. Fred and George on the wheel, Harry and Ron in the backseat, wanting a turn, never getting to drive, and so this is their opportunity, right? Yeah, it's now or never. They're just being Gryffindors. What's up, house elves, and welcome to another episode of Phantology. This is Steven, and I have Dan and Nathan on the line with me again today. We're reviewing the second Harry Potter book. The first one was a smashing success, so I had to get them back. They're here in the house, ready to go. What's up, guys? I'm doing good. How about you? He didn't ask how you were doing. He said, what's up? (laughs) All right. Sounds like you guys are ready to go for our review of Harry Potter 2, Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets by J.K. Rowling, of course. Now, the Harry Potter 1 podcast got a little bit of pushback. People thought we were a little too harsh in our critique, if you will, of the book. And let me just be upfront and say that we are not trying to criticize the book. We are trying to come up with an interesting take on some of the things that you've been that you've heard about for the past 22 years for this book, since this book was covered in 1998. So yeah, we're going to be breaking it down, nitpicking some stuff, but all in good fun because we're all big Harry Potter fans and grew up with the series and and love the books, right? Yeah, I figured some of the Harry Potter diehards and fact checkers were going to come at us with with their pitchforks. But like Steven said, well, I can speak for myself personally. I'm not an expert. I'm a fan just like all of you guys, but I like to read it and present you with the things that I that struck me personally. Yeah, I don't I don't have anything really negative to say about the series. Um, There are some things to nitpick, but I mean, at the end of the day, it's a book that's made millions. Yeah, millions and millions, probably billions, if we're being honest, or whatever that conversion is from galleons and sickles and canuts, right? All right, Steven. Yeah, I had to go there. Before we go too far, let me just mention, if you like what we're putting out at Phantology, check us out at social media, at Phantology Books, on all the social platforms. We have a website, www.phantologybooks.com. And then if you want to chat with us more, tell us what we got wrong, what we don't know about Harry Potter, you can join our Discord. We have a Discord invite on all our social platforms or hit us up in the comments after the episode and we'd love to have you on there. I think you guys are in the Discord, right? Yeah, I asked a couple of questions in the Discord, some book recommendations, and I offered some thoughts and it was a good community there. Yeah, Nathan, you're looking to join soon, I'm sure. Uh, yeah, I'll, I'll be joining in the next few couple of days. All right, Nathan, we're going to hold you to that. Fantastic. All right, so let's jump into the book. I think we'll just kind of go through the plot and then as events strike you guys, we can go ahead and spin off to whatever tangents we find necessary. And this is going to be full spoilers for the entirety of the series. If for some weird reason you have not finished reading the Harry Potter books yet, 
Maybe don't listen because we're talking through all seven books. So the action picks up once again at the Dursleys, like always. This time there's a new little gambit that's going on. Vernon's trying to get a contract with some unknown rich guy. I think some kind of drill company is the explanation. And we have this big run-in with Dobby, who we meet for the first time, who introduces one of the big thing one of the big things for this book's which is house elves. House elves are going to be explored quite a bit through the lens of Dobby. Yeah, Dobby, Dobby, however you pronounce that. He's one of my favorite characters throughout the entire series. Even in this book? Yeah, yeah, for sure. So you're one of the people who were tearing up when Dobby died? Uh, yeah, I for sure teared up. Yeah, not sure if I teared up at the time. Maybe I'm just racist against the other races. Not, not races. What's the word? Creatures? Creature nationalities? You don't believe in spew? No, I would not be. No, I would not contribute to spew. I'm sorry, Hermione. Okay, I'm going to strongly disagree with you there. If we want to talk about the social justice of the elves. Yeah, we can hop into this because this is kind of where J.K. Rowling gets into elf social justice and wizard social justice with the half blood, pure blood, mud blood stuff that goes on in this book. Yeah, and there is some of that later for, well, Draco Malfoy is the main one that's throwing hate speech around all the time, just openly calling for the death of all mudbloods. But with the house elves, they have, obviously they have great magical capabilities. They're fully uh, sentient creatures. They have families, but for some reason they're under captivity. And I wanted more of an explanation of that, but Stephen, you don't seem to care. You seem to think that that's where they belong and they should be put in their place. Let me maybe back up from that harsh explanation. I guess maybe all I'm saying is that I didn't, the, the novel didn't make me care about them, probably because we never got enough of an explanation for the questions that you are bringing up, Dan. Because in the reading of the books, I was all, I, I was all focused on Harry and company and the wizards and the house elves were completely relegated. And I guess I mostly just kind of like wrote that off as, I don't know, maybe I'm secretly racist against house elves. I, unclear it was just it was hard for me to just gloss over upon my most recent read it's hard to gloss over the the slavery of the house elves and this is coming from someone who unlike nathan i detested dobby in this book and he warms on me later as we go throughout the series but in this book he just was a nuisance whenever he came up because yeah he maybe has an idea that harry is about to face this danger but i know that harry is going to be able to overcome this danger and the most important thing is I want Harry to get out of the Dursley's house ASAP. Like, I don't even care if he dies. Just, he can't live his whole life with the Dursley's. So it seems like being stuck there would, would be worse. Well, as we later find out that Dobby is the health helps for the Malfoys, we, I mean, it's clear speculation that he knows what's going on and knows what the Malfoys are up to with the Dark, Dark Lord and Voldemort and trying to bring him back. Well, he knows something, and I don't think the Malfoys are necessarily up to bringing back the Dark Lord. I think Lucius, we can talk about this more too, but I think Lucius just has somewhat of a plot to pass off the book, and maybe he knows that it will open the Chamber of Secrets, but I don't think he believes it's going to bring Voldemort back. Well, not not bring him back, but he, he obviously knows about the Chamber of Secrets, and he obviously knows about the Horcrux and the Diary. He obviously does not know about the Horcrux. There's no way he knows about the Horcrux. Voldemort didn't tell anyone about his Horcruxes. Yeah, I, there's no way that he knows about the Horcrux or else he would have treated it with a lot more care and not just given it away right into the, in, into the Weasleys. Yeah, and I think Dumbledore even explains this in the fifth book. There's a conversation 
when Harry and Dumbledore where Dumbledore says something to that effect. So I think we can confirm that, that he did not know it was a Horcrux. My take on this was he was just trying to, like he really got off on all the dark arts and he had a great time working with Voldemort and he's been bored for the past few years. So he wants to get back at the Weasleys and he sees this as a win-win. Plus it's going to help him get back at Dumbledore. So yeah, he maybe doesn't know exactly what it's going to do, but it kind of checks all the boxes for him. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. I see. I see that. Can we go back to Dobby though for a second? Because I think the reason why I don't like the Dobby situation at Dursley's much is because I get so much anxiety at that pudding scene that the Dursleys have banished Harry to his room and all he has to do is stay there. And not only does he make an appearance, but Dobby causes the whole pudding thing. And then for whatever reason, the drill guy doesn't want the deal. I don't get, I don't understand that by the way. Like why does the drill guy march out? Like what does that situation have to do with him buying the drills? Because he's been embarrassed, publicly embarrassed at this important business meeting. No, I get why I get why Vernon is embarrassed, but I don't get why the deal is suddenly off because the dessert got sabotaged. Well, it falls on his wife, doesn't it? Well, yeah. Yeah, I guess the drill guy is just as much he's just as low as the Dursleys. But why is this if it's such an important deal, why is it taking place at their house? I think that's how it happened in like the olden times. That's kind of a, a classic deal yeah invite him over for dinner shake on it after dessert something like that okay old school english dealings there but were you guys not way stressed out when the pudding thing happened for harry it seemed like a made for tv portion of the book yeah i agree and the movie does it really well where he's kind of like trailing along he's about to grab it and save the day and then he ends up like standing over her with the pudding on his hands so yeah that was a stressful event for sure yeah and then Speaking of slavery, the Dursleys reach new lows in barring up Harry's window and only allowing him out. I can't remember if this is written explicitly or if we're just assuming that he gets let out to use the bathroom. They better have let him out to use the bathroom. But they put his food under the door. I can't imagine a more terrible living circumstance. Yeah, it just gets worse and worse. More and more a, a roll doll type situation here with the Dursleys. But the rescue that Weasley bros pull off uh, pulling the bars off the windows and pulling Harry out, just as once again the Dursleys are right behind him, like yanking him back in. Another kind of made-for-movie moment. And honestly, I can't remember if all the details of the of those moments are the same in the books. But that was really fun, and that introduces a fun element of this book in the flying car, the, the Ford Anglia, Anglia. Yeah, like yeah, yeah. Going back to uh, Arthur Weasley and his job of trying to figure out more about Muggles. In Muggle cars, he yeah. spells the car to be able to fly. I love how his whole job is exploiting and controlling wizards that do exactly what his main hobby is. Oh, right. So you mean how he smuggles things home and is experimenting on them? Right. Like it seems like his job would be an extreme. Well, obviously it is because you see that when, when Mrs. Weasley sends the howler to Ron when, when they ride it to Hogwarts, how serious of a deal it was because his job could be in jeopardy. Right, his father is facing an inquiry at work after the howler comes. <laughs> yeah, but how cool are Fred and George that they're willing to go with their little bro to rescue his friend? And yeah, his friend is really famous and stuff, but it's, it's just a really fun move to Fred and George that makes you like them a lot. Yeah, for sure. Well, Fred and George have never turned down an opportunity to cause trouble, right? Yeah. And driving a flying car is obviously fun, and then you anticipate getting in trouble, but you can say, hey, we have Harry. 
So yeah, again, all the boxes for them are checked. They're totally in for this. Yeah, and even after when they find out that they use the car to save Harry, it's never really implied or like they never really say how much trouble they get into because Molly Weasley's just thrilled that Harry's with them. Yeah, exactly. They totally take advantage of Harry's presence. Yeah. So are they really that good of friends? Or who really good friends? Fred and George. Are they just out for a joyride and looking for an excuse and using Ron and his buddy? I think that they're very altruistic. I like Fred and George. I do too, just trying to look for a different angle here. <laughs> I think Fred and George are like uh, older brothers for Harry to look up to in a way. I thought it was interesting that when they arrive at the borough, Molly and Arthur, well, Molly says that she and Arthur were planning on checking in on Harry anyway. Like, where was that earlier in the summer? What, how, in what way were they going? I guess just show up on the doorstep and knock and bring some pudding. Yeah, <laughs> pudding. yeah that would have been another good moment. I feel like that needed to happen at some point in the series where wizards just converge on the Dursleys. It's too bad we never got that. Well, don't they meet up at some point? There, There is a book where they meet, the Weasleys and the Dursleys meet, right? Nathan would know that for sure. It sounds familiar. If you know the answer to this, hop on Discord and let us know. Okay, so moving kind of past this scene, Harry's now in the burrow and they na- they're getting ready to go off to school again. So he's not in the burrow for that long. They just kind of like gloss over things. They find out that Ginny's a character and she has a crush on Harry. And they go off to Diagon Alley, except for Harry, who goes to Diagon Alley, which takes him to Nocturne Alley instead. And this is kind of a fun moment because there are several things that happen here that don't seem that important, but have big consequences later on in the series. Oh, hold up. Are we just skipping over the burrow? The burrow is one of my favorite places. We can talk about the flu powder and the boarding works too. If you have a burrow take, now's the time. Hey, first off, I just love the name, the burrow. That is the perfect name for the setting that is described by JK Rowling. And one thing that I get kind of annoyed with Ron constantly apologizing to Harry about the state of the burrow and about how it's probably not what he expected because does Ron understand? Ron saw the barred window that Harry was living in. I'm sure that Harry related to him, the stuff that his aunt and uncle put him through, and he just continues to apologize when clearly it's the best place that Harry has ever been besides Hogwarts. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, that doesn't add up. I would I would love to live at the borough. Yeah, everyone would. The borough seems like the coolest place. All right, we need to add that to Harry Potter World, the borough exhibit or ride. Yeah, get a tour of the borough. Okay, any more borough takes or is that it? You liked the denoming scene? I didn't really care about the denoming scene. For some reason, that's one that sticks with me as they throw the gnomes over the back the, the back wall. It kind of <laughs> reminds me when I was a kid and I would shovel my dog's uh, droppings. And instead of putting them in the bag, it was easier to just kind of throw them over the fence. But uh, before anyone freaks out, there was like a canal thing behind our house. So yeah, that was my process of taking care of the dog poop. Interesting. Also, also later in this series, when that the burrow they just can practice Quidditch at will. Oh yeah, that's. I thought the denoming scene was one of two scenes that I thought were totally unnecessary. The other one being the ghost party, the nearly headless. Thing. Yeah, the ghost party for sure. Yeah, I have a note written down: ghost party stinks or death party stinks. So yeah, I I identify that scene as well. I was feeling for Harry, Ron, and Hermione the whole time there at the ghost party. I was like, I would have wanted to be at the banquet. I, I'm, I was feeling FOMO for yeah, the Halloween banquet. So they're socializing, having fun. Oh yeah, at the Halloween party, but they had to be with all these dead people. But yeah, Borgen and Burks. Borgen and Burks. Yeah, Borgen and Burks. So do you guys know why Borgen and Burks is so significant or what I'm referring to? 
Well, there's could be a couple of reasons. I'm going to take a stab. It has a, the Vanishing Cabinet, which is later in book six. Yeah, the Vanishing Cabinet for sure. The necklace? The Opal Necklace is also at Borgen and Burks. And the, what, the Hand of Truth, I think it's called, that only grants light to its bearer. Malfoy uses that to some success in the sixth book. I can't remember exactly what he uses it for. Or it might be, the, no, it is the sixth book when he's messing around in the Room of Requirement, right? Yeah, number six. Yeah, and speaking of Malfoy, we immediately find out that he hasn't matured one bit over the summer and is still just, I mean, sadly obsessed with Harry. And Harry's Harry's there and he doesn't know it, but Malfoy, he overhears Malfoy just complaining about him even more to his father who doesn't care. Yeah, we get introduced to Lucius Malfoy. Yeah, Lucius Malfoy, a great character, the total uh, adult version of Malfoy that you'd expect. Doesn't... Malfoy says something to him and Lucius like kind of like trashes him for Hermione getting better grades than him too. I believe so, yeah. And this is where you start to get the idea of there are categories of wizards, mudbloods, half-bloods, purebloods, Malfoys are very into their pureblood. I honestly cannot remember if this is a thing in the first book or not. Yeah, so J.K. Rowling brings it in here and it's a big thing because this is like what the Voldemort party has built their their campaign around, if you will. They really like purebloods. Death Eaters like purebloods. So the Malfoys are into being pureblood. And they just sneer at everyone else who's a half-blood or mudbloods, especially detested. Really kind of an, an annoying behavior, right? Yeah, we later find out like how bad is it to say, like call someone a mudblood. And I just think it's really funny that Harry has no idea. Later in the book, like when Malfoy calls Hermione a mudblood and Everyone's freaking out, and Harry's like, what's going on? Yeah, that doesn't really make sense, right? Yeah, and Hermione's the one that knows what it is, right? Well, I'm not surprised that Hermione does something that Harry doesn't, but Harry should know this. Yeah, I feel like that's Wizarding 101. And if you're in a crowded wizard theater, what is worse to yell out, Mudblood or Voldemort? Well, probably Voldemort, right? Yeah, I'm going to go with Voldemort because you're not really calling anyone a Mudblood. You're just yelling it. You're saying, like, in terms of yelling and profanity, like if I were to go to a movie theater and yell at a profanity. Sorry, I was comparing it to the classic thing of yelling fire in a crowded theater. Uh, okay. Yeah, I would go with Voldemort for sure. What's likely to cause more of an uproar? Do you, you think Voldemort? Because their reaction to Malfoy calling Hermione a mudblood is pretty staggering. At this point in the series, I would say mudblood. It would change later on to be Voldemort, which would be worse. But I think this part of the series would be mudblood. How is Voldemort not worse? Voldemort is the Dark Lord. Everyone's still afraid of him. He didn't He didn't go away that long ago. It's like 12 years ago. Because just saying Voldemort has no meaning or anything. Later on in the series, they, they someone puts a spell on saying Voldemort. And all the charms around you fall later in book seven. So that plays into effect of it. But right now, saying Voldemort has no meaning whatsoever. Because he doesn't have any power. Look, guys, you never want to say the Dark Lord's name. That's like a fantasy book 101. You never say the Dark Lord's name. You're going to draw his eye to you. It's just a bad idea. Don't do it. I'll take your word for it. I don't know. They do it several times in the books. Yeah, don't do it. I'm telling you, don't do it. Don't say the Dark Lord's name ever. Okay, let's move past this part and go into the worst character in the whole series. You're referring to Gildor Lockhart. I'm, I'm yeah. assuming Gildor Lockhart? Yeah. Yeah, so worst character in the whole series, that's pretty strong. I mean, he's an annoying character. I think he's an interesting character. 
I foresee that. I don't know if we're going to do power rankings at the end of the podcast. Yeah, we have to do power rankings. Look forward to power rankings at the end. I foresee Steven trying to have a unique take and somehow say that Gilderoy Lockhart is really good and impressive because he's able to scam all these people as memory charms and able to woo all these middle-aged uh, witches. Is that a thought that's brewing in your mind right now, Steven? Well, now that you've said it, how can it not be? It's there. It's there. Lockhart, hey, Lockhart's really, really handsome. He's got a lot of money. He's not doing too bad. He's, he's got a book signing. But he's totally like a Roald Dahl character, too. Like we talked about in the first podcast, that the Dursleys are kind of Roald Dahl characters. Lockhart seems kind of like that, too, like a total caricature. He seems kind of like a soap opera star. Or like Yeah, and the, his name is right there, Lockhart. J.K. Rowling does a lot where she names her characters kind of in ways that describe their personalities. So, yeah, he's an interesting character, though. You, you got to give him that. Way. He doesn't add anything. I like how he pops up more as the defense against the dark arts teacher than Quirrell did in book one. We hardly got any insight to Quirrell. He was really in the background, but Lark- Lockhart was at the forefront of a lot of key scenes in the second book. There are several scenes of mayhem in Defense Against the Dark Arts that are pretty fun. And then obviously he's there in the Chamber of Secrets with them. So yeah, I think he's a pretty key character. Yeah, I mean, he does do a couple different things. But uh, I mean, he does he does go in the Chamber of Secrets after Harry and Ron force him to. And then he tries to run away, which backfires on him. The only true thing that he does is basically start the dueling club. Well, you don't have to be a competent character to be a good character. He's a good character in that he he serves a purpose and has an interesting personality. And in Harry Potter, that's really kind of what most characters are. There's not too many that have are super dynamic and gray and, and interesting. So someone who's got a personality and does something that's a little bit different than the other characters, I think is a great character for Harry Potter. Agree to disagree. Yeah, I agree. I like him as a character. And if we're going to be shuffling through a different Defense Against the Dark Arts teacher every single year each one of them has to be unique and stand out when compared to the other one so lockhart is obviously the cockiest defense against the dark arts teacher okay moving past lockhart we now go off to platform nine and three quarters which is tragically closed to ron and harry due to dobby's scheming in the background and they on an impulse decide to take the car and fly it to hogwarts really questionable decision here so many different ways this could have gone, but they just hop in the car and off they go. Well, if they were regular muggle kids, or if Harry had had regular muggle parents, he would know that when you get separated from your parents, you just wait at the car. You don't drive the car somewhere else. Like Arthur and Molly were going to reappear from the platform eventually. Yeah, that's true. What did they expect? They, that Arthur and Molly had hopped on the train and were gone as well? That, that's weird. And they also had an owl, so they could have sent Hedwig. I think McGonagall points this out. And that's a problem with the owl communication like we talked about in the first podcast. They wouldn't have heard from it for two days. You couldn't just text Dumbledore. Yeah, unless there's some kind of spell on the owls that make them fly faster or something. But it's a really fun scene, obviously, that we get to see the car again and that Harry and Ron get triggered. We also, as a result of this, we get introduced to the Whomping Willow, which is going to be key in the next book and in the rest of the series. So I see why J.K. Rowling put it in there. It's a lot more exciting, obviously. But if you think too hard about the reasons why Harry and Ron just on a whim took the car and flew it, you'll get a little confused. So it's best not to dwell on that. Yeah, there's a lot of plot decisions in this book that just kind of work to make the story go. But don't, if you think about it too much, you're like, why did that happen? Why did they make that decision? I, there's a few more that I want to point out as we get into the, in, into the story a bit more. 
I do want to point out before I forget, I thought that this book flowed much more seamlessly than the first book. Like there's noticeable improvements in JK Rowling's writing from the first book to the second book. She also injects quite a bit more humor and she does a really good job tying in the main plot points from book one into book two so that it can be a standalone book. Like obviously if you're reading book two, you've probably read book one, but just in case you haven't, she gives a really good background without making it too boring. At least that's what I thought. Also, I think part of the reason why they took the car is because they saw that Fred and George can drive it. So they figured, why couldn't they figure out how to drive the car? Look, they had probably driven the whole or flown the whole ride back to the borough. Fred and George on the wheel, Harry and Ron in the backseat, wanting a turn, never getting to drive. And so this is their opportunity, right? Yeah, it's now or never. They're just being Gryffindors. Yeah, typical Gryffindor behavior. Act first, think later. As long as it's kind of noble decision that they're undertaking but i did think that it was really cool that when they arrived at hogwarts everybody in the gryffindor common room was like ready to have a party for them it was like they had just won the championship or something like man harry potter got even cooler in the off season and came back to <laughs> came back with a splash he's coming in flexing big time <laughs> yeah everyone besides hermione was super mad at them yeah hermione continues to be the only responsible character one other thing that happens that's going to be very important is that Ron's wand breaks. Oh, yeah. It snaps almost in half. And he goes the entirety of the school year without a working wand at the magic school. I think Dan pointed this out in the first episode that we did. But how ridiculous. Like, he just threw away a crucial year of his education because it seems like every year kind of builds on each other. How does he hope to advance any further, having missed all of the instruction from the entire second year? How do none of the professors intervene? Yeah, can there be a trust fund that's put into place for Gryffindor students that are on that are falling upon hard times like this? This is ridiculous. Yeah. Looking forward to the power rankings. I can't decide if I want to penalize Ron himself for this because it's a huge detriment, like Stephen said, to his advancement throughout the whole book. And it's very puzzling. Or I can't decide to demerit Dumbledore or whoever was in charge or the we or Molly and Arthur or someone. It does mention in the book that Ron was scared to mention about his wand because it the howler that he got from his parents oh yeah they were mad at him and he didn't want to bring it up that he broke his wand because then that's kind of embarrassing you're you're losing your power i think it kind of falls on the gonagall's head she is the head of the gryffindor house she needs to be making sure her students are able to receive proper instruction right yeah in the in the movie it does a little bit better job i feel like in the book of this because part of the movie, there's a lesson where he's transforming his rat into a cup and it doesn't work. And McGonagall sees it and tells him he needs to get a better wand. Well, what the heck, McGonagall? Maybe like look into yeah. your student's life a little bit and figure out why he doesn't have a better wand. I'm just going to give the benefit of the doubt and assume that the wand only misfired occasionally. And maybe it did work as intended on some time. So his entire year of education wasn't totally wasted. Or perhaps it was all wasted, and this explains why Ron continues to be an abysmal student through the rest of the series. He was never able to recover from his lost second year. Yeah, speaking of lost second year, so our boy Colin Creevy. I don't know if you guys have thoughts about Colin Creevy. I don't really care about him as a character much. Yeah, how did he recover from his entire... How did any of the students who were petrified hope to recover from all the instruction that they lost? Well, Colin Creevy, he gets petrified at the very beginning, and he is muggle-born, so he doesn't even know about magic really anyway. So Hogwarts doesn't seem to have 
I'm a teacher, so I know all, all about uh, remedial programs, different ways of reviewing, filling in gaps in education, but they don't appear to have that at Hogwarts for students like Colin Creevy that get, that get petrified and miss the whole year. There is a scene in, what, the fifth or sixth book where Harry is learning how to do, oh, what is the name of the magic that Snape teaches him in your mind to defend against Voldemort? Occlumency? Sounds right. So they joke, or Harry's cover story is that he's taking remedial potions, and Malfoy makes fun of them for it. Later in the book, towards the end, they ask McGonagall if they're still going to have tests, and McGonagall replies yes, even though everyone's thinking that the school year is going to end. McGonagall says that they still have to be tested for what they learned throughout the year. And Harry and Ron point out a crucial thing, that as soon as they wake up the petrified people, Hermione's going to freak out to learn that she has to take her exams in like two days without studying. Well, Hermione would have been fine, I believe, because she was petrified late in the year. She's really smart. She was probably finished with all the coursework for the year already, to be honest. I think Dumbledore at the end announces as, as a special treat they're canceling all exams, and Hermione is very upset because she wanted to take the exams. So moving into further plot points, we kind of get introduced to Hogwarts a bit. There's some lessons that happen the death day party happens. We already covered this and said it stunk. This was one of J.K. Rowling's probably worst scenes, and it didn't make it into the movie, thank goodness. What was the point of this? Really just to kind of give them an excuse to be around when the Chamber of Secrets was opening? Maybe she couldn't come up with anything better. Yeah, because they would have been with their other classmates, probably just gone back to the common room, wouldn't have been out by themselves, wandering the halls. Yeah, and it makes sense that they couldn't have been at an established Hogwarts event. Like, they couldn't have been doing stuff with Dumbledore or something in a different part of the castle because then they would have had a clear alibi, I guess. The ghosts weren't a good enough alibi. So I guess it achieves all of those purposes for J.K. Rowling. But it fails because it gives us this half insight into the whole ghost world. But it kind of opens the door, but you want more... Like, you didn't know that you wanted to know more about the ghosts, but the death day party doesn't make you, it doesn't give you enough information, I feel like. Like, opens the door enough to say, hey, there's this thing, and then closes the door because you realize that oh, this thing's actually really boring and no one cares. Exactly, yeah. yeah. And there's way too many issues that arise when you start thinking about who is a ghost and who isn't, and why or why not, and are they a ghost forever? Turns out they're a ghost for a long, long time. One interesting thing about the Death Day Party is I believe, and Harry Potter nerds correct me, but I believe this is where the entirety of the ability to date Harry Potter events to actual dates comes from because it's nearly headless mix, like what, 200th or something, some big number, his anniversary, and they talk about what day that he, the year that he died on. And so it's from that dating system that we're able to say like, this is the year that the Battle of Hogwarts happened, etc. That's really interesting. I didn't know that. I mean, you can just tie it off of Harry's birthday. Yeah, but they don't say, no one ever says what year Harry Potter was born in. But you do just connect it through knowing how many years have passed since nearly Hitler snake died. Because I don't think anywhere else in the series they actually say a year. Oh, yeah. True, true that. I believe that to be true. Good, because I think it is true. And if it's wrong, hop on Discord and correct me. So next thing, let's talk some... Hogwarts Founders, maybe? Sure. The Chamber gets opened, and now we are privy to some details about the founding of Hogwarts and some more blood issues because we talked Slytherin leaves over the issue of not including only purebloods 
in the school because Gryffindor wanted to include everyone. Is that accurate? Yeah. Yeah. Are we going to talk about like Filch and Mrs. Norris and how he's a squib? The book kind of makes a bigger deal out of that, but it doesn't really have any ramifications other than you get, you kind of get a feel for why Filch resents the students so much. I don't know. It is a plot point, but we could have skipped over it. Yeah, I guess I never really cared about Filch all that much. Yeah, he doesn't really add anything throughout this series. I mean, he does some stuff here and there. Yeah, and he's really aptly named too. Like, we've been complimenting J.K. Rowling for her naming Argus Filch. Yeah, and the actor who plays him does a really good job because he also plays Walder Frey in Game of Thrones, if you've watched, and also a very nefarious character. Actors who play only villains or only really despisable characters, I kind of wonder how they sleep at night. I mean, back to the the founders of Hogwarts, I feel like Godric Gryffindor could easily have wiped out Slytherin. Oh, how so? Because he has his sword. Well, here's the thing about the sword. What's so cool about the sword? I don't get the sword. I'm sorry. I, I don't understand. So the sword, if for Harry Potter friends out there, know that the sword... Does it make your magical spells more powerful? No. Magical spells are ranged, so how does having a close-range weapon like a sword... Anything that touches the sword, the sword absorbs its power almost, type of thing. And so that's how later they find out... They touch on this later in the seventh book. Harry and Hermione find this out. That's why the sword's able to kill Horcruxes, is because it absorbs the venom from the basilisk. So if I cast a Vatikadabra at you and you have the sword, can you block it? Yeah. Is that confirmed? I don't know about that. I may be wrong, but I'm I'm like 80% sure. Yeah, I don't know about that. But Steven, are you wanting to talk about the sword and how it's used in this book in the defeating of the in the defeat of the basilisk? Let's get to that later on. I, yeah, I'm I have some issues with the whole defeat of the basilisk. Anyway, where we're at now is the bludger breaks Harry's arm. That's kind of an interesting thing. Kind of makes me wonder why bludgers aren't always breaking arms because they're always being hit at players. This one was extra persistent, so it was able to finally do some damage. Yeah, it seems like the bludgers are kind of failures if the breaking arm incident was rare, considering that's what they're supposed to do. goes back to Madame Pomfrey's paycheck that she gets. Ah, I want to know how much she gets paid. <laughs> yeah, and how how is Madame Hooch and Dumbledore and McGonagall and all of them, how are they not noticing what's going on with the bludger and calling a halt to the game? Yeah, so Hagrid realizes it's a rogue bludger. No one really does anything. They let it go on. Harry breaks his arm. Madame Pomfrey, sure, she does something, but all she does is give Harry a bottle of Skelliglow and says, tough it out, buddy. So I don't know if she needs to get paid more for that. Yeah. Just the fact that she has to put up with everyone that gets sick and stuff throughout Hogwarts. I mean, she's tending to the petrified people, but what does that really consist of? Just making sure they stay alive? You just leave them there in the bed, don't you? Yeah, but she doesn't really do anything for the petrified people. It's the uh, well, it's the it's the mandrakes. Yeah, the mandrakes from herbology. Yeah, yeah. Professor Sprout does all the work for the petrified people, but just all the times that Harry's in the hospital wing. I don't know. I'm not quite as sold on the Madame Pomfrey needs to get paid more. She seems to just kind of like hand off a potion. I don't think so either, but what did you guys think of the Nimbus 2001s, how the Slytherin team strolls in with... Oh, yeah, great moment. I simultaneously love and hate that. Just the fact that Draco shows up, he's like, yeah, I'm the new Seeker. I thought it was great. Yeah, and I felt 
competitive advantage of the Slytherin team. Like J.K. Rowling convinced me that they were going to take the entire game by storm that season just because they all had new brooms. But what's up with the broom, uh, like engineering and all that? Is that just goes faster? Is it the craftsmanship? Better broom style? Not really sure. Not touched on. Yeah, unclear. Unclear what it is. The clean seven sounds so weak sauce. And what's the, what's the other one that's the outdated broom? I think the Comet 360. It's just like wobbling through the air. You can just visualize it, but the Nimbus 2000 is streaking. If there's a competitive, huge competitive advantage here, how are they allowed to use different brooms? What other sport allows you to use equipment that is clearly more powerful than the other team's equipment? I'm going to push back on that. Baseball? Yeah, I think there's equipment advantages. Like you've seen the evolution of footwear, of different like baseball bats. Well, yeah, but every team has access to the same ability. Every team's got the same bat. It's not like one team's got wooden bats and one team's got metal bats. It seems like in Quidditch, the player player supplies the broom, not Gryffindor, just the player. The argument is that the school or the house itself should supply the broom, then that's one thing. But other than that, players, they just got to have like a bake sale or a food drive or a fundraiser or something to raise money for better brooms. Shouldn't past Quidditch players from the houses, there's got to be a lot of them. They've got to have made a lot of money because they were probably the it people when they were at their time in school. They went on to good careers. Maybe some of them went to play professional Quidditch. How are those people not putting money into a grant that is buying good brooms for their Quidditch teams? Uh, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I do I do think it's cool that Harry gets a new broom in the third book from Sirius Black. That's supposed to be this all-powerful broom. Yeah, the brooms continue to power up. I think broom technology must have maxed at the Firebolt. Just to sidetrack a little bit more on the Firebolt, the third movie is like the most corniest thing I've ever seen in Harry Potter at the end of the movie where he gets on his broom and just rides away. Yeah, that was a little lame. It's also lame that he got it at the end of the of the movie because he gets it at the beginning of the book. But that's the third book, so we're not going there quite yet. We are going to talk about now Colin getting petrified and the action kind of starts to pick up. It seems like this air of Slytherin thing is a big deal. And we need to figure out a solution. And the solution is we're going to arm everyone, teach them how to protect themselves in the dueling club. The dueling club. Where are you going? I want to bring up something. I'm sorry. I keep interrupting going off on tangents. But I don't get how the Colin Creevy petrification doesn't provide uh, the alibi for Harry. As we know, people saw him with Madame Pomfrey in the hospital, like Madame Pomfrey herself saw saw him when Colin Creevy gets petrified. So I don't get how he's a suspect still after this. It just goes later on. I mean, during the dueling club, a lot of people get suspicious that he's the heir of Salazar Slytherin because he can speak Parseltongue. So you think that by later on in the year, like after Justin Finch Fletchley gets petrified that people have like forgotten about Colin Creevy and all that stuff. So yeah, I mean only the Gryffindors at this point probably know who Colin Creevy is. <laughs> He's just a nobody and no one cares about him. And so that's not a sufficient alibi for Harry. I'm not buying it. I think the plot just demands for whatever reason that Harry is always under suspicion. There's always a lot of adversity thrown up against him by the other people at school. It seems like every year his friends are turning against him or the, or the classmates right? and classmates are suspicious of him for whatever reason. I guess it makes it interesting and kind of drives the plot along and kind of always makes it seem like Harry's the underdog. Yeah, definitely a recurring theme throughout. 
but yeah, I just wanted to bring that up. But we can talk about the dueling club now. Yeah, so the dueling club is fun. You see Lockhart kind of like wave his wand around and try to be fancy. And then Snape just tells him what's up. And then the, the, the summoning of the snake and the parcel tongue, these are all important moments. Yeah, I kind of like Snape in this scene because he goes up against Lockhart, who's a character that you maybe despise even more than Snape. And he just kind of nonchalantly owns him and puts him in his place. And then Harry gets his moment against Malfoy and clearly defeats him. Yeah, that's satisfying to see as well. It's interesting that in this club, random club, in the second year, Harry learns Expelliarmus, which becomes his go-to spell yeah. for the rest of his schooling career. Are there no better spells than disarming? Like, there's got to be something that disarms and stuns, or does like some cool combos. Or there are some more powerful spells like the Sectrum Sempra, but that's horribly gory, so we stay away from that one. I mean, come on, Harry, let's learn some better spells by later on. Expelliarmus and Stupefy are the two spells that Harry uses the most yeah. throughout his whole life. We need to advance spell technology here. Uh, a counter spell to Expelliarmus that if I cast this spell at the exact same time that you're doing Expelliarmus, that you're the one that loses your wand. Like, well, there's like Britango. With- oh, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, you just got to make it more risky to do Expelliarmus. It seems like a no risk spell. Like, why wouldn't you throw out Expelliarmus right at the beginning of every duel? Because then you can dodge it or use Protego. I mean, it's just a super, super easy spell that a second year knows. It's actually kind of unclear to me how dueling actually works. I mean, we're just saying a word, pointing our wands, the spell fires. How do you determine who's a good dueler? Because you cast the spell, the spell seems to kind of go with the same power. It seems like it's all about dodging. Your ability to dodge, your nimbleness is crucial. Yeah, if you're really dueling, like in the sense, I'm thinking of like Hamilton versus Burr, and you're dueling to the death. Don't you just both cast Amata Kedavra at the same time? If you're a Harry, you would do the Expelliarmus against Avada Kedavra and somehow manage to pull that off. Well, there's reasons for it, but let's not get into that quite yet. Maybe there should be like a shorter amount of syllables for Expelliarmus, like a more advanced Expelliarmus, where it's only one syllable that you can just shout out way quicker. Well, more advanced spellcasting is all nonverbal. True. The dueling Dumbledore and Voldemort in, what, book five? That is my favorite wizard duel scene. And I think it's really the only scene where you actually see what is possible at the upper tier of magical spellcasting. Where they just duel, no one says a word. They just go out. Yeah, they're summoning all sorts of things and then turning the other person's spell into something else and throwing it back against them. It's really cool. Yeah, it seems like at the dueling club, at least in the initial lesson, the goal is just not to hurt yourself. Which crucial for Ron, whose wand could backfire at any moment, and does because the eat slugs moment happens, right? Wait, isn't that later? That's not in the dueling club. No, not in the dueling club, but I think we're moving past the dueling club. But after the dueling club, when Malfoy calls Hermione a mudblood, and Ron freaks out and says, eat slugs. Yeah. The spell backfires on him. Wait, one last point about the dueling club. I think something really effective that the author does. Harry finds out that he's a parcel tongue at the exact same moment that the reader does. Yeah, and we saw this in the first book when he was talking to the snake behind the glass at the very beginning of the book, and he's also been hearing the Baskell's voice already. So you kind of start to maybe put some clues together if you're the reader of, of maybe what's going on here. Yeah, it's like that moment when Harry finds out he's a wizard. We find out at the same time as Harry. Right. Yeah, but this obviously much more negative because now people think you're a parcel tongue, Voldemort was a parcel tongue, 
and this suspicion against Harry is enhanced even more. If I was a Hogwarts student, I would not think that Harry's the heir of Salazar Slytherin and he was the one to take down Voldemort. I mean, how does that make any sense whatsoever? Well, the theory that Justin Finch Fletchney, if that's how you say his name, tough name, propagates was that Harry is in fact a more powerful dark wizard. And that's why Voldemort went to go kill him. And no one knows what happened or, or why Voldemort was defeated. So it could make some sense. I can see a bit of fear here. And if we've learned anything during the current coronavirus pandemic is that when there's uncertainty and things like this are happening, fear just kind of propagates and people make up all kinds of things. Yeah. We should call Justin Finch Fletchley JFF for the rest of the podcast. Yeah, agreed. Yeah, agreed to that one, JFF. Okay, now next thing that happens is the polyjuice potion. The polyjuice potion to me seems like a terrible plan. They are doing this advanced potion brewed illegally. They have to get all these different ingredients at great risk. And the whole point is to get close to Malfoy and try to extract information that Malfoy is the heir of Slytherin, even though it doesn't really make sense that a second year could be the heir of Slytherin. Like, what is the logic here? And it's really disappointing that Hermione is the one coming up with the plan. I think kind of Hermione just wants to strut her stuff. I think she's just bored with the second year material, just looking for a little something on the side to concentrate on. But I agree with you, Stephen. It is a little bit over the top. There seem like simpler solutions. Mainly, I'm thinking they use the invisibility cloak pretty easily to get into the Slytherin common room and to overhear conversations. I'm thinking maybe just make friends with someone in Slytherin, try to get some intel on Malfoy. But they make it abundantly clear that this is not just your run-of-the-mill potion. They have to get all kinds of extra ingredients. They have to sneak into Snape storage to get what did what did they have to get? They have to get boom slings, man. And their whole scheme to do that is pretty impressive as a side note. But yeah, apologies potion. And then after they do it, they don't get the information that they, well, they do find out the Malfoy is in the air, but also it backfires and Hermione turns into a cat for a month. So it's longer than a month. It is? Throughout the whole Christmas break. How long is your Christmas break? Well, it doesn't specify how long Hogwarts Christmas break is. However long it is, it's really unfortunate for Hermione. Okay, Polyjuice Potion provides us an opportunity to meet up with another character, Moaning Myrtle. And this is also how we find the diary, Tom Riddle's diary. So this, this bathroom that Moaning Myrtle lives in is obviously where we need to brew the Polyjuice Potion. Kind of makes sense. But what did you guys think of Moaning Myrtle as a character? I think she's kind of fun. I don't know. I don't know. I feel like the book would have gone a whole lot faster if Moaning Myrtle just told where if they asked the right questions to her, it would have gone a whole lot faster. They would have figured out where the Chamber of Secrets were. Well, they didn't know. How would they have known? I don't know. Just ask her questions, how she died, why she's there. Well, maybe that's the lesson the book's trying to tell you is don't discount the parts of society that are looked down upon like house elves and ghosts and ask them questions and learn about their lives. And you could learn some valuable information. That's a good point, Stephen. Learning Myrtle is the ghost that I actually like, by the way. They spend countless, countless hours, countless days making that potion in that bathroom. They, I mean, if I was Harry or Ron, they're not brewing that potion. It's all Hermione. I mean, they got to be walking around that bathroom, counting the ceiling tiles. Well, it's a fiction book, Nathan. There's a lot of points in the book that could have gone a lot faster. For example, they could have denied Ginny her request to go back and get her diary at the very beginning. And then they would have just had to run of the mill year two and learn some nice things. Yeah, I think my point stands in that they could have asked Moaning Myrtle and they could have learned a lot faster. 
but they didn't. And that's kind of the point. They should have maybe reached out and been a little bit more friendly, but they discounted her just because she was an obnoxious ghost. Next thing that happens after the polyjuice potion fail, I mean, they don't get any information about Draco. They do learn that the they're slowly gathering, right? They learn that the Chamber of Secrets was opened, what, 50 years ago? And then they, the Harry gets the diary. He learns that Hagrid was the one that opened. At that point, I think that's when Hermione puts it together. Is that right? Yeah, Hermione... She runs off, she has this light bulb moment where she tells Ron, Ron and Harry that she has to run off. And she goes to the library, right? Yeah. And that's how we find her. She's turned petrified. petrified. And she figures it out. And at that point, she starts looking around corners with a mirror. And she's there with Penelope Clearwater, yes. which provides some comedy at the end when they realize that first she's been snogging her. And so as they're gathering clues, I just want to say that from the reader's perspective, I was also trying to gather clues. And I think J.K. Rowling does a good job of mixing up her. So when you find out that Quirrell was, you know, the villain in book one, you kind of think back and you remember, oh, yeah, that moment where he was uh, hexing Harry's broom or that moment where he was here or he left the troll out of the dungeon. Like I should have caught on to all these things. So you're hypersensitive to it in the second book. But she doesn't leave hardly any clues to who the heir can be. Like you have no idea. And even when you find out it's Ginny, there's no. It's not Ginny. Ginny's being manipulated into opening the Chamber of Secrets through the diary. Yeah, you know what I mean. Yeah, there's the moment where she wants to get her diary at the beginning, and then what? There's some kind of moment where she's acting weird. Yeah, she's feeling pale, and then she tells them that she has something that she needs to say to them, but then they think that it's just that Percy had a girlfriend. So so at this point, the school is on full-on lockdown, and Lucius Malfoy has convinced the governors, these mysterious governor characters, to take Dumbledore away, and Hagrid gets taken away as well because of his previous involvement. This, to me, seems like a terrible plan. Why are we removing Dumbledore from the school? I mean, if we're taking Dumbledore away from the school, furthermore, why have the students not been taken away already? Look, I mean, we're in the middle of this coronavirus thing. Everything is being shut down. It's amazing to me to think that a school where students are actively being attacked would be kept open. This previously happened when it was first opened 50 years ago. They didn't shut down the school until someone died. So I figured that was their same thinking process. We're all good until someone dies. Yeah. Yeah. I think air of removing Dumbledore from the situation and sending Hagrid Azkaban. I mean, us as readers, by this time, we're more than a book and a half through. We're familiar with Hagrid's bumbling ways. So, yeah, it seems like it should be easy for everyone else to see that Hagrid cannot be capable of something like this. But he's also got a love for giant monstrous creatures and doesn't really realize they're dangerous, like Aragog and the rest of the giant spiders who have a name that I cannot pronounce. He tells them as he's being let off to follow the spiders, Yeah, which It'd be terrible advice, once again, from Hagrid. Thanks a lot, buddy. But it is a crucial uh, clue that Harry and Ron find out to follow the spiders, and the spiders are deadly afraid of the basculus. Yeah, so at this point, different things are just kind of happening. And like Dan said, the plot really does do a good job of being very continuous, and it slowly gives you more and more clues. You unravel more of the mystery, strong in the point that it is a nice, falling plot, and eventually we're putting all the clues together. And you see things coming back from the beginning, like the car, the flying car, when they come back, it saves them. That's fun. Yeah, the car coming back to save them was really fun because it seemed like they had 
they had come to their end when I didn't see a way out for them when Aragog. Yeah, they were being cornered by the spiders. They had Fang, but Fang isn't going to do much. Fang's a bloody coward, as we know. (laughs) So now the action has really reached its peak as Ginny gets taken. A student is taken into the Chamber of Secrets. It's revealed that it's Ginny. Obviously devastating news for our heroes. But we do think at this point that we know where the Chamber of Secrets is. So Harry and Ron are going to try to save the day. They uncover the note that Hermione had written down that says pipes. They figure out it's a basilisk. Basilisk is in the wall. They, they connect with the moaning myrtle. Everything's coming together. No one's believing them. And they do get Lockhart to help them out. Kind of weird. Like, why didn't they get maybe McGonagall to help them out? Once they, all the teacher, all the professors find out that Jeannie was taken, Lockhart is the one that's being volunteered to go save Ginny. Yeah, but don't the professors just do that to get rid of him because they're so tired of him? Yeah, and he also claims Snape is the... I think it's Snape the one that... He's the one that says that Lockhart has been claiming that he knows where the Chamber of Secrets is. And so everyone's saying that since he's this super great wizard that he's going to go and save the day. Yeah, but no one believes he's actually going to save the day. I guess what I'm saying is why don't Harry and Ron, with substantial proof of the Chamber of Secrets, go to McGonagall or a more capable wizard and explain what's going on and get them to come with them to the chamber. I mean, they know Lockhart's a fraud. Because, Stephen, it's more fun this way. That's the frustration I have with this book, is it's more fun this way. It kind of seems to be the theme of explaining why things actually happen, but that's fine. I mean, it's a YA book, and it's fun. And honestly, I'm just kind of nitpicking. Yeah, so I wanted to, a character that we haven't talked a lot about so far is Dumbledore. And we had a lot of in the first book about Dumbledore's two hands off. You know Dumbledore knows that Lockhart is a fraud and he's able to see through him. And he must know. But I feel like he knows that Voldemort is behind it. I think, I don't know how he doesn't know. He's got everything else figured out. How does he not know? It happened 50 years ago. This guy pours over events yeah. that have happened in the past. He's got to know. It does mention when Harry is in the Chamber of Secrets talking with Tom Riddle that Harry says to him that Dumbledore saw right through him, that he knew it was him that opened the Chamber of Secrets. Yeah. So he's obviously got to know. Yeah, and I think that Dumbledore does know this. And I think it's interesting, like, he has the moment where he brings Harry into his office, and Harry sees the box, and he sees the sword of hat, and he has those uh, nice feel-good moments. And then Dumbledore asks Harry if he has anything that he wants to share or anything, and Harry keeps it all inside. He doesn't want to admit that he's hearing voices and whatnot. But Dumbledore probably knows what's going on with Harry, but he allows Harry to go through this adventure on his own to stretch himself, to grow, I guess. I don't know. That That's my take on Dumbledore's actions in this. So there's a fun theory going around on YouTube right now, popular YouTube channel, called Dumbledore's Big Plan. And the idea is that Dumbledore is really kind of pulling the puppet strings like Bran Stark, again, for you Game of Thrones fans. And he's the one who is kind of manipulating Harry into facing these dangerous things in order to, I guess, like test Harry and improve his mettle and going off the whole idea that Dumbledore has heard the prophecy and knows that Harry and Voldemort are connected and, and one must die at the, hand, at the hand of the other. So that's why Dumbledore is being hands off and he's really like forcing Harry to be the one to deal with these huge problems. It seems it's kind of a fun theory. I mean, I don't subscribe to it, 
But if you think about it, it kind of makes sense. Like in the first book, how did Dumbledore set up the mirror and get Harry to be there at the appropriate time and, and give him all these insights into how to face the challenges? Anyway, check out this YouTube video. It's called Dumbledore's Big Plan. Yeah, I thought that was interesting because, um, and I've, I've heard of that theory, Stephen, but in this book, if Dumbledore knows what the Basilisk is and what it's capable of, obviously they were extremely lucky that the first several victims didn't die, but that he allows the school to continue and he doesn't try to crack down on it. I just thought that that was noteworthy. So he's choosing to let a few people possibly die or be petrified and contract serious injuries in order to, I guess, get Harry into a position where he can take down Voldemort. I mean, I don't believe the theory. It's fun, though. It's fun to think about. I'm just going to say this. I completely, 100% agree with the theory. Okay. Nathan subscribes to the theory. So anyway, check out this YouTube video, Dumbledore's Big Plan. But let's continue on into the plot. So now we are down in the Chamber of Secrets. Harry's doing parcels, tongue stuff. Lockhart tries to escape because he's a coward. And Ron's damaged wand saves the day because it blasts his memory spell back upon him. And again, I thought that was kind of fun because the damaged wand finally like shows the reason why it was in the plot from the very beginning. And now Harry has separated from Ron conveniently. He's going into the Chamber of Secrets on his own and is about to take on the heir of Slytherin, who he discovers is Tom Riddle, who is really Voldemort. And like you guys were saying, this is a nice reveal and a pretty involved action and setting scene it was fun like down in the depths of the school i like this scene really well i feel like it's really interactive the fact that fox comes in and helps out harry by blinding the the basketball so he couldn't see so that harry could fight him and then the whole sort of gryffindor just furthers my my rational thinking that it's like the most powerful artifact of magic that there is in within Harry Potter. Wow, more powerful than the Elder Wand and the and the other Deathly Hollows. Okay, maybe not power, more powerful than Deathly Hollows, but we don't know about the Deathly Hollows at this point, Stephen. So we couldn't really say that it's more powerful than those. But I mean, we know about the the invisibility cloak, but we don't know if it's a Deathly Hollow or not. Yeah, that's fine. I'm gonna push back on your Fox thing. Because I thought that was almost like the worst moment of this whole scene. Because it's some of the weirdest deus ex machina that I've ever seen. Deus ex machina means God from the machine. And it's the idea that the weapon that the hero needs, or whatever the hero needs to get out of the situation and save the day, is just kind of provided from some power above. So how in the world does Fox know that Harry needs to be there? He brings the sorting hat. The sorting hat contains the sword. It's weird. I thought this whole construction was weird and it doesn't I, I didn't think it was foreshadowed enough i mean there is a scene with fox earlier in the book so you at least you know that he's a character but i didn't like this deus ex machina i think this goes further along with the dumbledore theory that dumbledore knew where the chamber of secrets were he knew where harry was and so he sent fox to go help him so he somehow programmed fox remotely to go there fox is one of the most intelligent birds out there and i mean fox went to go help harry i do agree with you Stephen, that there should have been more foreshadowing and i agree with you that i think dumbledore knew um i think that it had to be this way because 
like we talked about in book one, how they get through all the challenges to reach the Sorcerer's Stone, how they didn't really use any complicated magic. They only used magic on a couple of the challenges, like the rest of the stuff was just um, stuff that muggles could have done. And likewise, the only spell, like we talked about earlier, you really knows is Expelliarmus. So J.K. really had to be invented. She had to figure out a way that Harry could defeat this huge monster. And an enchanted weapon does the job in this case. Yeah, so for plot reasons, Fox comes in with the sword. It, it, it works. Yeah, Fox clawing out the eyes of the basilisk is a huge stress reliever for me because it just freaks me out knowing that somebody could die just by looking at this thing. Like, how do you operate in the same room as this creature? Side note, when I was a kid, I was terrified of the basilisk. I think it was probably after seeing the movie or reading the book. I don't know. But I was convinced that there was a basilisk in our house, possibly, and there was a chance that I might be petrified as well. It was a really scary book for younger readers, especially. There were some pretty scary scenes in this book. It could have been a lot darker. Like I said, it's a lot. It's really lucky that everyone was just petrified and didn't die. Probably if J.K. Rowling would have switched up the order of the plot a little bit, and maybe the Chamber of Secrets opens up in like the fifth book or the sixth book when Harry's a bit more mature, probably we, we would have seen a few students die or something, which would have made it scarier. I like that you mentioned some of the later books because the second book has a lot of tie-ins to the sixth book. In fact, J.K. Rowling, her initial working title for the Chamber of Secrets was The Half-Blood Prince. And I've been wondering as I prepared for the podcast, did J.K. Rowling know that the diary was a horcrux or was this something that was just retconned once you got into the actual Horcrux plot line? And I'm not sure. I feel like J.K. Rowling will say she did. I'm not convinced either way. Diehard fans are probably going to tell me she did. And I can, I'll believe that, sure. But at the same time, in reading the second book, there's like nothing there to convince me that there's anything about Voldemort's soul actually being trapped in the book other than the actual, like, I mean, the fact that his memory is there, but a memory and a soul, that seems different. I don't know. I, I, I'm going to go with just the fact that J.K. Rowling knew just because Harry stabbed the diary Tom Riddle at that point. The memory of Tom Riddle disappeared. And so the soul, memory, whatever you want to call it, also died with the diary, killing the diary. Yeah, but that doesn't suggest to me that she actually thought it was a fragment of his soul. It could have just been a memory that was being destroyed. Yeah, there, there's that theory. One of my friends... As I was preparing for this podcast, one of my friends mentioned the idea that the the diary in itself wasn't a horcrux until later in the series. But then I mentioned the fact that if you were to take away the diary and not even have it as a horcrux, then I don't think that Dumbledore would have known what or catched on to what Voldemort was doing as early on as he did. Oh, so that he was able to examine the diary and realize that it was a Horcrux. Yeah. Okay, I can I can buy that. I can buy that for sure. My personal belief is that J.K. Rowling retconned this after she got into the whole Horcrux plotline. I don't think that she had the whole Voldemort thing and Horcruxes planned out at this moment. I could be wrong, but uh, hop on Discord and we can chat about that. I feel like sometimes people maybe just give J.K. Rowling a little more credit than she deserves. I mean, she's a great author. The series is fantastic. I don't know that she's maybe quite as all-knowing as some believe, but we can move off of that. Also, also to go along with the battle, just the scene with Fox when he kills Harry, I thought that part was pretty cool. You were touched by that? Yeah, the Fox tears. You were crying tears as well? No, I wasn't crying tears as well, but the Fox tears that 
Tom Riddle thinks that Harry's going to die in the chamber, and he totally forgets about Fox, who's there. Yeah, Voldemort outsmarted by Dumbledore again. Okay, let's just hop into the last couple scenes here. We have Dobby being freed by the sock. Mm, I was okay on this, but seemed a little contrived. I liked it better how they portrayed it better in the movie. The book it portrays it just Lucius Malfoy just threw the sock out of the book and Dobby just happened to catch it. Or in the movie, Harry placed it in the in the diary and Malfoy gave it to Dobby and then Dobby got the sock that way. I thought that was better portrayed in the movie. Wait, I thought in the book Harry plants the sock in the book as well. Is that not how it is in the book? Yeah, yeah. And then Malfoy opens the book and he sees the sock and throws it like just tosses it away and Dobby catches it. Okay, I can't remember the details there, so we'll have to we'll have to rely on you for that one. I don't know how wizards do their laundry. I'm a house elf, I'm just like hiding under the bed for laundry day. But most people when they're doing their laundry and folding it, there's some kind of throwing element or tossing. Extend your elf arms and just like intercept one of those. <laughs> I'm free. <laughs> I'm free. Master has presented with sock. Perfect. Yeah it's nice to see Harry outsmart Lucius Malfoy at the end, though. Yeah, Lucius has a rise and a fall in this book. Like, if this book didn't end the way it did, Lucius could have been a much more prominent character. Like, he's there throughout the whole book, don't get me wrong. But he could have been, like, the main, I'm talking Bellatrix Lestrange level of, of Death Eaters. But he kind of, he loses a lot of his Mamba mentality. He kind of gets owned at the end of the book. Later in the book, Hagrid, the the return of Hagrid. Yeah, Hagrid returns in triumph. The feast is thrown. Exams are canceled. Gryffindor wins the House Cup again, right? Yeah, obviously. Harry and Ron both win a billion points and Gryffindor wins. I want to say they both get 200 points. It's just an exorbitant amount of points. They crush it. Blow all the records out of the water. Also, uh, uh, can we just go back to the, the funny moment when Lockhart, after he loses his memory, asks Ron if he lives down in the Chamber of Secrets? Like, yeah, that's his house. Lots of good comedy. Lockhart provides some. Fred and George provides some. Yeah, the comedy is good. <laughs> okay, the book is over. We've covered enough. Let's quickly do our power rankings. We do this at the end of series reviews because it's fun to kind of see how characters rise and fall in particular books. So we want top three and bottom three from each of you guys. Okay, so let's start with Nathan. Let's hear your top three. Top three, number one. Number one is going to be Harry. Yeah, easy choice. Easy choice. Harry outwits. I mean, he defeats the Basculist, finds out where the Chamber of Secrets is. I mean, he does it all with, I'm going to say, a half of the book without Hermione's help. Number number two, I'm going to say, is Tom Tom Riddle or Voldemort unleashing the Basculist on, on Hogwarts again. But kind of unsuccessfully, right? Like, he doesn't even kill anyone. He almost gets away with it. He almost kills Harry early on, early on in the series. And number three, I'm gonna say, I'm gonna say, uh, Professor Sprout for producing the Mandrakes to heal the petrified people. Clutch performance there in the lab, getting the cure ready to go. Yeah, I wish we had a bit of a timeline on the coronavirus treatment or cure vaccine or something as we did on the Mandrakes yeah, development. You worked on the Wizarding World's efforts in curing coronavirus. Are they hard at work in a herbology class? Maybe some mandrakes involved in the the heel of the coronavirus. Okay, Dan, let's hear your top three. Okay, I'm going to go with Harry, number one, as 
as Nathan said, this is a really strong Harry book, really coming into his own here. Number two, I'm going to go with Fox the Phoenix. As corny as it is, Fox the Phoenix seems pretty OP, does its job really well. So for number three, I'm going to go with Fred and George. These are my guys, so they start off with a big car rescue. It was a big hit for me. And then they're one of the only people in the whole school, and Gryffindor included, that support Harry through his time. And they're making jokes of all of the Heir of Slytherin accusations and really get behind Harry in this moment. Okay, if you've heard any of our previous podcasts, you know that I try to be a little more unique in my top three. Maybe not necessarily what I actually believe, but my top three, number one is Dobby, because Dobby does a fantastic job in doing what he's trying to do in getting Harry to stay away from school and protecting him. He doesn't actually succeed, but he does do some pretty powerful magic, and he gets freed at the end and continues to be a strong character going forward. I think I was a little harsh on House Elves at the beginning. I'm going to retract that officially. And say, I do care about house elves now. And Dobby's my number one. Okay, number two is Lucius Malfoy because he does a great job planting the diary, unleashing the air of Slytherin, getting some Voldemort action back in the world when the world needs it most and things are starting to get boring. I don't know if he really knows exactly what was going on with the diary. And I, I don't think he does because he wouldn't have been so flippant with his master's soul. But he does open the Chamber of Secrets and... He's got some cool hair. So Lucius Malfoy, number two. Number three. Number three is difficult for everyone, but I am going to go with Percy Weasley for getting a girlfriend. Fantastic job, Percy. <laughs> Fantastic job. Elsie Clearwater sounds like she has some nice skin. Yeah, she sounds hot. I'm not going to lie. Okay, bottom three. Nathan, let's start with you. Let's hear your bottom three. Bottom three would have to be McGonagall. I feel like she's the most, out of all the professors that are head of the different houses i feel like she's the one that cares the most out of the students but yet knowing that ron has a bad wand doesn't do anything about it doesn't protect any of the students very that much i mean it's kind of just there as the i mean she's number two to to dumbledore yeah let's count up the bodies that were petrified did gryffindor have the most petrified um creepy if you're counting sir headless nick as as Gryffindor? Yeah, as Gryffindor. Okay, so that's two. Um, Hermione? I think that's, yeah, three. I think that's the most. Yeah, no one had more than three. So, yeah, Colin McGonagall. Number two is Dumbledore. I Again, I don't... But I thought that you agree with the theory that he has the long-term vision as he's trying to help them. Yeah, I do not like the plan. I do not like Dumbledore as a character. Dumbledore, if he was truly the greatest wizard of all time, I'm sure he would have found a way to defeat Voldemort before the prophecy was revealed, but he just doesn't do it for me. I mean, if he was truly trying to help out Harry, he wouldn't just leave the school and the governors, whoever they are, that are setting Dumbledore out of Hogwarts. I just don't feel like they have any power over him. Ooh, governors. <laughs> Number three for me would probably probably be Ron. Just the things that Ron does. It was his idea to take the car. I mean, he broke his wand. I mean, he doesn't really add add much to Harry. I have a theory that if the if the podcast goes later, I'll share my theory about Ron. Yeah, or we can add that to our Patreon. If you're a fan of the podcast and want to hear some additional takes, check out our Patreon channel. I strongly disagree with the sentiment that Dan just expressed that it was not his fault because Ron is totally playing the victim here. I get it that he's 12 years old. But look, man, you got to inform the people 
that you need a wand. That is not an excuse. And if you're just playing the victim, that is not going to empower your life. Very bad life direction and choices here. Come on, Ron. Hey, another point in Ron's favor is he had the instincts to not go into the spider death trap. That was only because he's deathly afraid of spiders. Yeah, he was being a total, a total. I feel coward. like if they didn't go into the spiders, they wouldn't have figured out nearly as close enough as they did where the basilisk was. <laughs> All right, Dan, let's hear your three. Okay, my number one is going to be the entire house of Slytherin. More specifically, Draco Malfoy, but I'll tell you why I'm grouping him into the entire House of Slytherin. Draco has some really poor moments in this book. Like I said, when they find him in Bergen and Borks, he's complaining about Harry Potter. He's obviously jealous and obsessed the entire book. He hangs out with Crabbe and Goyle. I guess that's an indictment on the entire Slytherin house, but they're just complete buffoons and morons. There's somehow a character named Millicent Bolstrode, who you can kind of picture what she looks like just from her name. This is the girl that likes Draco, right? Yeah. The speech like draco is openly campaigning for the death of all mudbloods he's calling for that that's a large percentage of the hogwarts student population never gets punished for it never gets reprimanded by slytherin professors the other thing is the password to get into the slytherin common room is pure blood really seems like you get a guess that as well <laughs> there's only one slytherin professor and that's snape yeah whatever well, whatever professor they should have they should have uh, cracked down on that. Um, the other thing about Draco is that he has a hilariously poor effort in his Quidditch debut where the, the snitch is like perched on him and he doesn't recognize it and Harry snatches it. Right, he's too busy monologuing once again to stole a line from Incredibles. Yeah, so that's why Slytherin is not impressive to me at all. They're not convincing me that they're anything other than a dark wizard factory. The second one is Hermione. Hermione disappoints me. She was my number one in the first book. She disappoints me because she falls for Gilderoy Lockhart. She seems like she should be above that. That doesn't really make sense to me. She and one I know that she's 12 years old, like Steven said with Ron, but still she should know better than that. Also, apologies pushing going back to that. I thought she was kind of overstepping her bounds. Wasn't necessary. Not a good call there. The third one, I'm going to say Hagrid, just for the spider incident. That is out of all the reckless things that Hagrid does in the book, sending him, sending Ron and Harry knowingly to Aragog is probably the most reckless of all of them. So those are my top. I'm just going to throw out this point. Hermione is the one that figured out what the monster was, the basculist, before anyone else. She just happened to get petrified. She didn't get petrified. She, they would have known immediately. Yeah, but why doesn't she alert the authorities? Why, why does she try to take it into her own hands? Well, she's petrified before she can do anything, right? As she's trying to leave the library. The snake has obviously been spying on her or something. That's a good point. I never thought about that. Yeah, really quick. we got to take him out. Hey, Steven, what are your bottom three? Yeah, my bottom three. I'm going back at number one for the same reasons that you put. Sending him off to these huge spiders that are probably have probably eaten people before. This is way bad judgment. Why don't you just tell Ron and Harry something prior to this, but in classic Haggard fashion, he does not recognize the danger. Number two, I'll say Ginny. This is unfortunate for her because I don't really fault her too much because she's only 11 and she got taken in by this dark curse. I get it. But at the same time, it was really, un- a, really a very unfortunate way for her character to begin her time at Hogwarts. So that's going to be number two for me. She improves quite a bit. She's able to really rebound from losing her entire first year. So that's impressive. So she's going she's gonna to rise up my power ranking in future books. Yeah, number three, Lockhart. Dan predicted that I would have Lockhart in my power rankings. I did consider it. 
but I'm going to maybe just to, to thumb my nose at you a little bit, put him in my bottom three and say that I was really disappointed in his cowardice that came out at the end in the Chamber of Secrets. Kind of wish maybe in all the time that he had spent learning of other people's uh, heroic efforts and writing them down in books that maybe he would have learned something as well and developed as a character. He does not. And unfortunately, he spends what the rest of his life as pretty much a vegetable that can never recover his memory because of the power of his curse. Yeah, those are pretty good, Steven. I felt like we were kind of all over the board there, but I see what everyone's saying with their with the power rankings. Okay, that's a wrap for our review. I might have again been a little harsh if you're still listening at this point. Know that I really did enjoy the book and I've read it probably about 10 times. So I'm just trying to add some additional flavor to the podcast. Thanks for listening. Thanks for being fans of Phantology. If you'd like to check us out more, we're on social media at Phantology Books or online at www.phantologybooks.com. And please hop on our Discord and correct us on all the mistakes we made. Until next time, we'll see you guys later. Thanks, Dan and Nathan. Yeah, thanks for having me again. Thanks, Stephen. And yeah, I want to echo that. I also love, I, I love this book. If that wasn't evident, we, but everyone loved it. So we had to kind of play devil's advocate on some things. 